Good morning, everyone. Our reading today is found in the book of Esther, so please uh, join me in the book of Esther. Our reading today will be from Esther chapter 5 and verse 1 to Esther chapter 8 and verse 2. And before we read, a brief recap of the story so far. In chapters 1 and 2, God's people are dispersed throughout the Persian Empire. Esther, who is a young Jewish woman, becomes the queen. And Mordecai, her adopted father, saves the king's life. And in chapters 3 and 4, a major crisis develops. A man called Haman becomes second in command to the king. Haman hates God's people and has the king pass the law in order to destroy them. The date for that is set for the last month of the year. And on hearing this, Queen Esther resolves to beg the king for mercy on behalf of her people. Let's now read God's word together. Esther chapter 5 and verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Chapter 6. That night the king could not sleep. 
So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and let him on the horse, lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? Petition. It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he, where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind 
to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Thank you. Can I add my welcome to Lexus? It's good to see you here this morning. Good to be together as we worship together. Let me just lead us in prayer, and then we'll have a look at these chapters. Heavenly Father, you've said in your word that you reveal mysteries. You reveal yourself to those who are humble and those who are contrite in heart. And so we pray, please, uh, would you be at work this morning? Give us a humble spirit that, you might, that we might receive your word and be blessed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1980, Steve Ovett uh, was one of the great uh, middle distance runners in the UK. He'd recently uh, won an Olympic medal and was a very, very talented runner. Anyway, he thought he'd give the 5,000-meter uh, race a go. It wasn't normally his distance, but he thought he'd give it a go uh, in a race in front of his home crowd in London. Uh, and by the final lap, he was heading for certain victory. He was, he, his stride was comfortable. He had hardly even broken sweat. He was winning this at a canter. And leading with a full length to go, he lifted his arm to greet the crowd that had come out to see him proudly. Uh, but behind him, there was a short, uh, gutsy runner called John Tracy, who fought differently. And he began to give chase. With about 90 meters to go, uh, Ovet, though, saw him and was able to accelerate away. It was almost humiliating. But then as Ovet approached the finish line, he went and did it again, raising his hands to receive the adulation of the crowd, slowing right down as John Tracy, straining with every last ounce of energy, ran and ran and pipped him over the line to beat Ovet, this great Olympic champion. 
It was this remarkable turning off the tables, the humiliation of, of a proud athlete, the exaltation of a humble grafter. Well, this morning in Esther's 5, 6, and 7, in the first few verses of chapter 8, we're going to see a remarkable turning of the tables. We're going to see the humiliation of the proud and the exaltation of the humble. And through that, we're going to see some, uh, some of the fundamental ways in which God works, how God saves, and how we're to respond to him. Josh uh, read out that recap, but just to give it to you again, if you've missed uh, the last few weeks or have forgotten God's people, in the story of Esther, they are dispersed right across the Persian Empire. Esther is a young uh, Jewish woman. She becomes queen. Uh, Mordecai, her adopted father, saves the king's life. But then we saw this major crisis develop. Uh, Haman um, has a plan. Uh, has the king sign off on a plan to destroy all of the Jews in the empire. Uh, on hearing this, uh, Queen Esther resolves, we saw that last time, to go to the king and beg uh, for her life and for the life of her people. And so last time we were left with the questions, what's all going to happen? What's the king going to do? Is Esther going to get her chance to beg the king for mercy? When she approaches, approaches him, is he going to spare her life and listen to her? Or is he just going to kill her, which we, he was entitled to do? And if he does listen, what's he going to say to her request for mercy? Well, we're into scene six, if you like. An, a new and urgent crisis. In the palace, it's time Esther puts on her royal robes and leaves her room to go and approach the king. She goes and stands in front of the king's hall. That is, effectively, she goes and knocks on the king's door. There's a great big pause. The king looks up from his desk. He sees that it's Esther. Esther, how good to see you. You look splendid, may I say. What can I do for you? Anything you ask, up to half the kingdom. It's a massive relief. But Esther doesn't answer him straight away. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet later in the day. At that banquet, the king again asks Esther, what's your request? What can I do for you? Up to half the kingdom. And again... Instead of answering straight away, she invites them both to another banquet the following day when she says she'll finally answer. Now, we don't really know exactly what Esther's strategy is here, uh, but she's the queen. She knows the king. She knows how the court works. She knows what the best thing to do to, to secure uh, the best possible outcome. So by the following day, the king will have attended two of her banquets, and three times will have promised to give her whatever she wants up to half the kingdom. Unless at that point he's prepared to lose face, he will have to give her what she wants. It's a smart strategy from Esther. Better to take your time and get it right than rush things and ruin it all. And in any case, 
Um, time's on her side, right? Uh, the, the debt for the destruction of the Jews isn't for months and months and months. What is one day? What difference is one day going to make? But that evening, after the banquet, Esther's strategy all begins to unravel very, very quickly. Things suddenly become very, very urgent, and it's all to do with Haman. After the banquet, Haman comes home to see his wife and friends and talks to them at length about his favorite topic, which is, of course, himself. Hey, everybody, let's do a quiz. Can anyone guess how much money I earn? I'll give you a clue. It's loads. Have I told you before about what my sons are up to? I have. Well, let me tell you again. You'll be really, really impressed. Right, everybody? Shh. We're going next door to my honors wall. Here's my most recent medal from the king. Um, did you know all, everyone in the court is to bow down to me? I would bow down to me too if I could. And he just drones on and on and on. You can imagine someone sensible just tries to steer the conversation away from him to anything else. No, 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 I'm not finished. I'm not finished. Who was the only one that the king and queen invited to the banquet today? Me. Who is the only one invited to the king and queen's banquet tomorrow? You've guessed it, me. And reading this, we just want to say to Haman, just please, we just give it a rest. Stop talking about yourself. But Haman isn't just annoyingly proud. He's terrifying. Because he's not just pride, he's proud and powerful. And that is a killer combination. Just like that, he flicks back to fury as he remembers Mordecai not bowing down. His wife and friends suggest a chilling solution. Go outside, get some gallows set up. Go to the king first thing tomorrow and have Mordecai impaled on them. Haman loves that. And so right there and then, these gallows, this pole, is set up outside his house. And so as the lights go out that evening and everyone goes to bed, this threat to God's people, which had looked like it was heading towards a solution, has suddenly become extremely urgent and time critical. Esther's plan, uh, Esther's courage that we saw last week is all going to be for nothing. At this rate, she's not even going to get the chance to beg the king for mercy. By the time of her planned banquet tomorrow, Mordecai will be executed as an enemy of the state. Esther will surely have been exposed as his daughter and at the very least de deposed. And God's people dispersed throughout the kingdom will still be under this uh, death sentence. You see, the fate of God's people um, at this point, it's like a it's like a plane in the sky whose, whose engines have stalled. It is in full free fall, heading for certain disaster, and there is minutes to go. And there's nothing that Esther and Mordecai can do about this. 
They have no clue about Haman's plan. They're fast asleep in their beds, unaware of this deadly peril. So a new and urgent crisis. Then scene seven. A night of extraordinary coincidences. Over in the king's bedroom, despite his luxuriously soft bed, despite his soundproof walls and all the rest of it, for some reason, the king can't sleep. What are the chances? So he has his attendant read out uh, the record of his reign. And out of all of the military victories and state banquets and royal visits and all of the rest of it, which event does the attendant just so happen to read out? Well, the account of Mordecai saving the king's life for which he was never honored. What are the chances? This is something that the king is very keen to put right. So he sends for advice, go and see who's in the court. And at that very moment, out of all of his advisors, who just so happens to be hanging around looking for an audience with the king? Uh, Haman, up bright and early to ask the king to sign off on his plan to execute Mordecai. What are the chances? And so just before Haman has his chance to ask the king to sign off on his execution, the king has a question for Haman. And here again, we see Haman's pride. Haman, there's someone I really ought to honor. All right. Someone who has been extremely loyal to me. Oh, yes. Can you advise me? What should I do for him? And of course, Haman is just so proud that he, of course, assumes that the king is speaking about him. And so he downloads every single last one of his greedy fantasies. This person, whoever it is, uh, should get to wear one of the king's own robes and get to ride on one of the king's own horses and be led through the city streets with everyone shouting his name. Haman, great suggestions. Thank you very much. Listen, Haman, would you, uh, would you mind if you went and did just that? Yes. For Mordecai. Do you know who I mean? Mordecai, the Jew, sits at the king's gate. Oh, to see the look on Haman's face as he robes Mordecai, puts him on the king's horse, and leads him through the streets of Susa. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. You see, just in the nick of time, with hardly a second to spare, we have this comedy of coincidences. The tables are turning for some inexplicable reason that the jet engines have restarted and the plane is gaining altitude again. Esther's plan is back on, and it's now Haman's plan and plot which is heading in, free, in full free fall, about to crash and burn. Haman runs home with his tail between his legs, tells his wife and advisors everything. What encouragement do they offer him? Verse 13, since Mordecai, 
before whom your downfall, downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Sorry, Haman, you're a goner. See, even they can see what's going on here. There is a hidden hand at work, God's hidden hand. And so we come to scene eight. A glorious reversal. Haman's rushed to the banquet. The king asks Esther for a third time, what's your request? Finally, she tells him of the plan to kill her and her people. The king is furious. Who planned this? Who dared to threaten your life? Tell me. And then we have the moment. Esther says, an enemy, an adversary, this vile Haman. The king storms into the garden. He's furious. His fate is sealed. And then as the king re-enters the palace, Haman, it seems, his fate is sealed, but it just seems he's, he now accelerates towards his just desert. He's been begging Esther for his life just at the moment when the king comes back in from outside. He slips, loses his footing, and falls on the couch where Esther is lying. It's just an accident, but of course it looks scandalous, and the king hits the roof. Set up some gallows, have Haman impaled on them. At which point, I think this is maybe the, my favorite bit of the story, and Harbona, the eunuch, chips in, and he says, oh, by the way, your majesty, there's no need to set up any new gallows. There's a massive one already set up in Haman's garden. He was going to use them to uh, impale uh, Mordecai, your hero, the one who saved your life. And so the king explodes, impale him on it now. And so what we have is this proud, proud, evil Haman, humbled, scuppered by his own scheme, tripping over his own ego. And to make it all the sweeter, humble Mordecai, who had never once grasped after honor, is exalted even higher. He's given the king's signet ring. He's asked to fill Haman's role as second in command and appointed over Haman's entire estate. Well, what do these episodes uh, teach us? I think three things. Firstly, it reminds us that God's timings are faultless, perfect. Do you know, at points in this episode, it looks like the timings couldn't be any worse that night before Esther's final banquet, if we didn't know what was coming, would be thinking, if only you had told the king when you had your chance what's going on, if only you didn't delay, if only God hadn't given you this idea to delay things. And at points, we can feel the same way when we look at our own lives. Why didn't I say that then? Why did that happen at that point and not at a different point? Why was I so hasty? Why didn't I see that email until, until it was too late? If only the timings had been different. Of course, we should always repent of and learn from our mistakes. Um, but as we've seen, God's hidden hand is behind everything 
including the timings of our lives. His timings are perfect. The king's sleepless night at just the right moment. Haman's arrival in the palace at just the right moment. Haman's slip on the couch at just the right moment, bringing about an even more glorious reversal than we could ever have dreamed. What a relief that the one who is in charge of everything, the one who's in charge of our lives, has impeccable timing. Now, sometimes we see that very clearly in the moment, and that's wonderful. Sometimes we don't see it until years later, and then we look back and say, oh, I I get it now. Sometimes we'll never fully get why he did things in the time frame that he did. It'll be a puzzle to us forever. But in light of what we see of God here, what we see is that we can still trust him. We can still trust him and know that his timings are perfect. He knows what he's doing. Secondly, we see here that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. In Haman, we see a picture of pride. It's not just boasting. Maybe that's the most obvious expression of pride. It's more than that. Pride's favorite pastimes, you see it in Haman, dwelling on, thinking about, talking about, obsessing about me. Pride's daydream, being honored. Pride's nightmare, being overlooked. Pride's pet peeve, when others don't make a big enough fuss about me. Two things pride will never do. Number one, say sorry. Number two, laugh at himself. Haman can't do it. Can't bring himself to it. At heart, it is the mindset that says, I am the center of the universe. I am the most important person to walk this planet. Everything and everyone has got to revolve around me. And of course, even if we're not as bad as Haman, all of us are tempted to pride. I know I am. But these chapters serve as a stark warning against being proud. It reminds us that God humbles the proud. Sometimes he does that in this life, sometimes not. But he will always do it in the end, ultimately. And the flip side of that, he exalts the the humble Think of Mordecai saving the king's life, not honored for it, doesn't make a fuss. Yeah. And when he is honored, after it, he just, he just goes back to his job at the king's gate. And God exalts him. God exalts the humble. And of course, ultimately, we see that in the gospel. That if we humble ourselves to see that the universe doesn't, does not resolve around me, but around God that I'm not the most important person to walk this planet, if I humble myself to recognize my sin and my my folly and say sorry to God, the promise of the gospel is that he will exalt us and lift us up, sometimes in this life, sometimes not, but in the end, ultimately, always. Heaven is full 
of humble people. People saying things like, I still can't believe that little me is in this place. Why would I be here? Will you humble yourself, therefore, under God? Will you be humble as we engage with one another? God loves to exalt the humble. And then thirdly and finally, we see here that God is the rescuer of his people. If it weren't for that extraordinary um, cluster of coincidences in the king's bedroom, the story of Esther would be a tragedy. It would be the sad story of how God's people were almost rescued, but in the end perished. The only reason it's not a tragedy is because of those four verses at the beginning of chapter 6. What goes on in the, king's, in the king's bedroom, those coincidences. Those verses are, if you like, right at the very heart of this story, the turning point. And you'll, you'll notice from it, there is no, at that point, there is no brave human being involved, no brave agent. Mordecai's asleep, Esther's asleep, God's people are scattered. This is God working by himself to rescue his people. And that is really the author's point of the story, that it is God who rescues. Yes, he uses Esther at points. Yes, he uses Mordecai at points. They are wonderful examples. But God is the one who ultimately orchestrates this rescue. He is the one who intervenes. He is the hero of the story. He is the savior. And again, that's just a lesson we need to reflect on ourselves, isn't it? As you think about our own lives. If you're saved, if you're trusting in Christ, why is that? It's not ultimately because you were brought up in a Christian family. It's not ultimately because a brave friend told you the gospel. It's not ultimately because of a godly Sunday school teacher or a, a skilled Christian author. It's ultimately because God orchestrated things such that you would hear the gospel and broke into your life by his Holy Spirit to open up your heart to receive it. That is why we believe God is our rescuer. And so as we reflect on our lives, will we give him the credit that he deserves for rescuing us? Or as we think about other people, yeah, what's going to save them? Yeah. Well, yes, God loves to use people. Um, he, he, he instructs us to tell the gospel. He wants us to tell people the gospel. Make no mistake about that. But again, ultimately, it is God who orchestrates things. Unless he intervenes, unless he is at work in people's lives to receive the, his message, there can be no rescue. He is the rescuer. And therefore, I think this calls us to pray. You know, before we tell people the gospel, before we send our kids to Sunday school, will we pray that God would do his saving work in their lives just as he has done in ours? Unless he is at work, there can be no rescuer. No rescue. Let's pray. Together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God who can be trusted. 
that you are sovereign over all things, including the timings of things in our lives. Lord, we may not always see that, but we thank you that we can trust you, that you have a big picture plan, that you know what you're doing, uh, that you will bring about uh, good uh, whatever our circumstances. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are our rescuer. And we pray, please, that we would give you the glory, that you would give you the honor for uh, working in our lives graciously to help us, to move us, to receive the gospel. Thank you that you uh, humble the proud and exalt the humble. And we pray that we would be those who walk humbly before you and before one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.